0: Everything that we have just heard, everything that we uh, have just been able to sing, it is all true. I want you to hear that today at the very outset of us giving attention to a difficult text. Um, They do not contradict one another. In other words, those things that have already been spoken those things that have already been heard from God's Word, the truths that we have just sung are true. uh, And they stand alongside of uh, and help us understand uh, the the difficult text that we will give attention to today. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we'll be giving our attention to the Last portion of chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Follow along as I read. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. John Piper wrote, The Christian church in America suffers from about 350 years of dominance and prosperity. He goes on to say, what I mean by dominance is that in most of American history, being Christian has been viewed by the wider culture as normal, good, patriotic, culturally acceptable, and even beneficial for the most part. He says, what I mean is is that prosperity is seen in being Christian and has generally resulted in things going well for those in America who profess Christ, and who are quote-unquote Christian. Since the Christian ethos has been dominant, it has also been a pathway to success. Success, he means, by suffering. He says we are suffering from 350 years of dominance and prosperity is that, that this is deeply ingrained in us a massively unbiblical mindset, namely a mindset of at-homeness in this world and in this age. And he says this has not been good for us. We are suffering from it, prosperous though we be. We've been dominant and we have been prosperous and therefore we have come to feel at home in this world. And have developed a deeply ingrained assumption that things should go well for us as Christians. And that this is our world and our age and that being a Christian and being well thought of must go together. And that poverty and sickness and suffering and struggles and death and the worst thing that can happen in a land where there's Christian wealth and health and ease and upbeat and success oriented vitality. And from this, we have thus developed a form of Christianity to support this ingrained expectation of acceptance and comfort and security. And prosperity. And this form of Christianity. Begins by focusing on our felt needs. Not even eternal needs. That we may not even know that we have. But our felt needs. And it makes us appeal on the basis. That Christianity will make life better. Make life better for us in this world. It's not been brought up and we haven't been taught that to be Christian means that we suffer as aliens but better yet that we prosper as respected citizens and to be very indignant and angry if someone even mentions Christianity in light of some other way of life as it pertains to our suffering and struggling. What does all this have to do? Well, there's enough truth in this to make it plausible, if you will, that if you act like a Christian, then you won't have illicit sex, and so you probably won't get AIDS or some other STD. And that's better, we think of it in terms of that. And... If we're Christian, we won't drink to excess, so we'll be spared the devastation of alcoholism and all that comes along with that, and that's better. And if you continue to think along that course, if you act like a Christian, you'll work hard, and you'll be thrifty, and you will probably be successful, and you will do better in business, and that's better. And if you act like a Christian... Well, you'll just be kind and generous and folks will love you and respect you. And that's better than the alternative. But we've gotten these things out of portion. We've elevated the relatively minor things of this world. The things that have to do with this world and, our, and this spinoff that we have of, of what it means to be prosperous And what it means to be Christian. We've gotten all of that confused. And then when we go to the New Testament. And we hear the things that Christ has said. About what it means to be a believer. And what that will necessarily mean. For those who take a stand. And those who lose their lives. And give their lives away. I mean it just causes too much tension for us. And you may ask this morning. Why do we start here? Well. It's this same humanistic Christianity that has shaped our culture and has shaped us by and large when it comes to our understanding of sin and judgment and righteousness. Let's think together for a moment and see if we can describe the larger mass of our culture. Well, Western culture is by and large an unchristian culture, we would say. And it's not unchristian primarily because it has become religiously pluralistic. That's not the case. Western Christianity has always dealt with other religions. We always have. We're not unchristian because there has been an influx of Near Eastern and Far Eastern religions into the Western culture. No, the Western culture today our culture in fact maybe even the way that we think has been influenced by the condition of the church a weakened church The church weakened in the gospel, a weakened in understanding of God's word, weakened in what it means to be a Christian. For all the reasons that I have just mentioned, and all the reasons that John Piper was trying to point us to earlier, for all of those reasons, we struggle today with an understanding of sin, and judgment, and persecution, and suffering. And we don't want any part of any of that. And this is why our text is so important this morning. It's equally important to the preacher who was writing this to these Jewish Christians in a day long ago in a culture much different than ours and yet it is clear from the text that there is something here that needs to be attended and needed to be attended among them and I believe today that it needs to be attended among us. He spoke a severe warning about the reality of sin and judgment and punishment. Where, when we look at the text, it's clear the finger was not pointed to the people outside of the church, but the finger was being directly pointed to the people inside of the church. Now I'm not here today finger pointing because mind you, I am a part of you and you are a part of me and we are a part of this together. So if there are any fingers that are being pointed this morning, it is the finger of God being pointed toward each one of us as we at least try to honestly consider this text and what it means for us here today what it means for us in the days and the years to come. What we do understand, though, is this, is that when this preacher wrote this to this group of believers, there was at least the possibility that there were those in the church who momentarily looked like and acted like the church, but who were not the church. Think about that. I want you to know there is a big difference between those who have spiritual interest and those who are regenerate. I've been reminded of that as I have dealt with this text and the others in Hebrews because I recall over and over again, even since no longer than we have been together, of those who have come here to Oak Valley for short periods of time who had a spiritual interest but who may not at all be regenerate. Think about that. There's a difference. And the second thing is that the preacher didn't know who these people were when he looked at the congregation, when he sat down and penned this. I don't think the preacher had any one particular person in mind. I think he was just warning the church that they were along a trajectory that could, under the persecution that had come and the persecution that would come, they were in a place where there was the possibility of those who were not regenerate that they would expose their unregenerate state. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well if we listen to John Piper and I think that there is some merit in that that it would be a good thing because if we were persecuted as a church the question would come naturally come would everyone who is claiming Christ today still claim Christ? If it wasn't and your best interest to be a Christian. If it wasn't so popular to run into Christian circles. If it didn't look well for you to be at church. If things were not good for you from the government standpoint. If there was the plundering of property. And the beheading of people. And the crucifixion of those today who profess Christ. Would we still be quick to profess Christ. If it was no longer popular, where would we be? We have over the last 19 weeks, we've heard of three other warnings. I want to couple these together real briefly because they are all coming together. And what I am, I, I am still amazed at is in the course of this letter, we have four very serious warnings to the people within the body of Christ. And I'm looking at that personally because I'm saying if God's word coming to this preacher, going to this church was relevant then and it is relevant today and I'm hearing it today What does that say about me? What does it say about us? What does it say about our ministry? What does it say about our mission and our direction? What does it say about who we are? Well, in chapter 2, we had a warning. And the warning was about drifting away by failing to hold fast to the gospel. We heard it this way. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In chapter 3, we heard the warning about turning away from God with an unbelieving heart. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In chapter 6, We had this warning. We were confronted with apostasy and we heard it this way. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him to contempt. Now all of this is coming to this congregation. And and you might feel uh, somewhat like they did. Man, this is heavy stuff. This is coming to me and I'm professing Christ. But this morning we heard the fourth warning. And it is highly likely that there were those in the congregation who were not believers. Believers. And that would in due time fall away. Because the Spirit continued to urge them in regards to this this message. And I believe He is continuing to urge us today. Now we said when we started Hebrews, and I want you to hear today, and it was the reason I said just a moment ago, everything that we sang just a moment ago is true. And it concluded, purposefully so, with us singing what we sang in Christ alone because of that last stanza. Because it is His power in which we stand. If we have Him, if we know Him, if we are known by Him, then we are kept in Him and it is in His power that we stand. But I also want to be careful here today. Because I don't want anyone here today that is not a believer to leave thinking that he or she is. There's too much at stake. And I don't want anyone here who is a believer leaving thinking I'm not. Because there's too much at stake. But we do have to assume that it existed in that church and We may even assume today that it exists for sure in the church. And it may, maybe even here among us. What do we hear? Well, let's look. We hear this morning that there is a severe judgment of God and it is inevitable. Look, if you would, there in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, here's the warning. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Who can expect this judgment? Well, we hear the text is clear at this point. The persons who are being considered, let's look at them. Well, they are in the church So they are in this body, they were in this particular body, you see that, for if we, he includes, if we go on sinning, so he's talking to the church at large, okay? So there was a possibility of them being in the church. We also know that they had knowledge of the truth. In other words, they understood the gospel. They had heard the gospel, they understood the gospel. You have already this morning, hopefully, uh, you could sit down and write out the gospel by what we have read and what we have sung. Again, it's necessary for us as a church to hear the gospel, the saving work of Christ and our need for it. It's not just that he saves, it's that our need of a savior and what it takes for us to be saved, what it takes for a person to be saved. So they're in the church, they have knowledge of the gospel, and there is at least the warning not to deliberately sin, not to deliberately sin. So he says if they go on sinning, then they can expect this judgment. Now, we looked back a few weeks ago, and I just want to refer back to this, what we are talking about when we're talking about this deliberate sinning. Uh, You may want to turn to this passage of Scripture. If not, just listen. But from Numbers chapter 15, uh, we looked at verses 30 and 31, and we were talking about it in terms of drawing the distinction between unintentional sins and intentional sins. God did. God did in the giving of the law. God did in giving of the sacrificial system. He drew a distinction between unintentional sins and intentional sins. But notice what we hear. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among the people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. And that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So it was clear in the sacrificial system that those who raised up deliberately against God, there was no Sacrifice for. In other words, the sacrifices that were being made did not cover those sins. But what kind of a deliberate sin? That's kind of where we are. What kind of deliberate sin? Well, the author of Hebrews helps us understand that. He notes three specific things about this type of deliberate sin. Let's just look at them real quickly. First, they reject the person of the Son of God. Look, if you will, there in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, there's a comparison being made here. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled, first, trampled underfoot the Son of God? In other words, the one who has rejected Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You say, now wait a minute, you said they were in the church. Yeah, I did. They're in the church. But also remember this. We said there is a difference between spiritual interest and regeneration. There's a difference between having interest in spirituality, having an interest in the church. There, is, there are some good things that have come. There is a good thing I'm going to say some, and I'm having to stretch this. There's a good thing to some degree that has come out of a seeker-sensitive movement. And that is, is that it has caused us to give attention to trying to connect with people. I would argue for all the wrong reasons, but at least trying to connect with people. The point that I'm making here is, is that if we are friendly and seek to be friendly and winsome, we have a better chance of establishing relationships with people, okay, than if we are unfriendly and we are unwinsome. In other words, if we act like we don't care about anyone and we're not a friend, we probably won't have a friend, we probably won't make a friend. But if we seek to be friendly, we are likely to develop friendships. Now the end of that for us in the Gospel is is that I have seen people that have come into the life of various bodies because of relationships, which are a good thing, but never have been pointed to the Gospel. Have never been explained the Gospel. Do not have an understanding of sin. Do not have an understanding of the judgment of God. Don't have an understanding of the atoning work of Christ. They have connected with the church because of friendships. And they get connected in an affinity group. And they're just friends. And they will be there for a while. But you have noticed, if you've paid any attention to the church at all, they soon go away. There is a warmness about being in a context where people are Friendly. That can even be true for us today as we seek uh, to, to be welcoming, to be friendly, to engage our community. All of those things are good. But there is the possibility of someone coming in just because they're longing for relationship and they get caught up in the warmness of the church but are never regenerated. You see what I'm saying? So that's what we're looking at here. Someone who ultimately at the end of the day will reject that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Look at the other thing that we recognize. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, uh, whenever he was addressing Philip, uh, he said, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Uh, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, uh, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What Jesus was pointing to is if you reject me, you have rejected the Father. So we see in rejecting Jesus as the Son of God, the Father has been rejected. But notice what else we see. Not only did they trample underfoot the Son of God, but also they profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified. In other words, they reject the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Now it's not uncommon today to talk with people, even people in the church, who will attest to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God but who will not hold that his death and his burial and his resurrection are the very source of life for them. And how would they if we are teaching and holding on to teaching moralisms as a way ultimately for salvation? In other words, if we're here each week and I'm telling you how you can be better next week so hopefully you can be on track to live a better life then what I have done is I have pointed you some other place than the atoning work of Christ for one's salvation. So there is a rejection of the atoning work of Christ and then notice the third thing that happens and has outraged the spirit of grace. It is a rejection of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus addressed this with the Pharisees in Matthew 12. You'll recall that after He cast out the demon, the Pharisees come back and accuse Him of what? They say, you cast Him out by the power of Satan. And then Jesus goes on, if you remember, and actually begins to teach them about the seriousness of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what's taking place here. There is a rejection of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Did you get it while ago? Whenever we were singing in Christ alone, did you get that we sang to the Father and we also had an expression to the Son and to the Spirit? That throughout the course of our service, we have given attention uh, to all three. And the reason for that, and even back whenever we were singing, all praise to Him, we pointed to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because it is important and necessary that we never, that we never even approach a place where we do not appreciate and praise each person of the triune Godhead. It is that serious that we don't, even want to, we don't even want to broach that. We don't even want to push up against that wall. Why? For fear of their coming about a rejection of these three. So here we see we have men and women in church at that moment who look and act like everyone else. But some of them are tempted and will be tempted to turn away in the manner that we just describe. And then, notice what happens. There are men and women who seemingly have been moved by the gospel. They're united with the church. We are assuming at this point they have been baptized, yet they're not believers. And then the message shifts to severe judgment. Notice what we hear Back, back up to that. It says, if they sin in this way, deliberately sin in this way, in other words, a rejection of God, There should be a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then we look on. For we know Him who said, in verse 30, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. And then the preacher concludes, which is a logical conclusion. It's reasonable. The conclusion is, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There should be a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. I want to ask you this question. Should the judgment of sin be expected? That's a reasonable question, isn't it? Most of us in here would probably shake our head, yes. Let's press into that a little bit. You know that all indications in Scripture point to that? That from the very beginning when man sinned, there was judgment for sin. It was prophesied. The grace of God withheld part of, those, part of that judgment. But in the end, it pointed to the judgment of sin. It's been a doctrine that's been upheld for most of church history. But it's a doctrine that today is held by some, but not by all. But even those who hold it primarily, they hold it silently. Almost ashamedly. Why? Because of what we started with. Because of our humanistic culture. In our culture and in this generation... The judgment of sin, the eternal punishment for sin is something that is rejected. And why not? If everything is about us, how could we ever begin to think that it would be good for man to be judged for sin? How could we ever think that at the end of the day, if everything is focused and centered on us, even our Christianity and our prosperity, how in the world would God ever Consider judging any one person in His creation for all eternity. D.A. Carson in his book, The Gagging of God, he talks about this. And he talked about how some of this is laid out by people. There's one in particular, Carl Pennick says, I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind and outrageous doctrine a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition that needs to be changed. Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom He doesn't even allow to die. Others We'll hold on to the fact that there needs to be punishment for sin, but certainly it can't be for all eternity. Man that I have appreciated and still do, appreciated his ministry of the past, John Stott. Uh, he falls into this category of, uh, of annihilationist. In other words, he said, I find the concept of eternal conscious punishment in hell intolerable, and I don't understand how people can live with it talking about those who are in it, how they can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But he says, recognizing the folly of allowing our emotions to determine our creed, he adds, as a committed evangelical, my question must be and is, it's not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's Word say to me? In response to these thoughts, I had, many of you know how much I appreciate, appreciated Dr. J.I. Packer's work in knowing God. He writes this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. I'm going to push a button here to make a connection. This lays at the heart of a biblical worldview. This rests foundationally in a biblical worldview. God is only angry where anger is called for. Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be? Morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that Scripture has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. This righteous anger, the right reaction of moral perfection in the Creator towards moral perversity in the creature so far from the manifestation of God's wrath and punishing sin being morally doubtful, the thing that would be morally doubtful would be for Him to not show wrath in this way. Why do we mention that? Well, it's clear from the text that the person who rejects Christ, hear this please, denies His atoning work, and rejects the Holy Spirit, will and should expect eternal punishment. Even if that is under the pressure and fire of persecution, if we abandon and turn away from Him, then we should expect that. Because that is what will come. And these are hard words. Hard words. And I don't believe in anyone who speaks them lovingly with the recognition of the severity and the seriousness of this, relishes in hell fire falling upon anyone. I don't. Some of you may have read at some point in time, even in a literature class, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He was broken hearted when he delivered that. He wasn't standing up pointing a finger and screaming and hollering as if somehow he found some satisfaction in it. He understood the seriousness and the severity of this. After it's all said and done with, the point is not that God is morally objectionable in His punishment of sin, but that sin is so morally repulsive that it rightly deserves punishment. Hear that again. At the end of all of this it is not that God's punishment of sin is objectionable. Morally so. But that sin is so morally repulsive that it rightly deserves such punishment. Now why is this important? Because this is captured in this context just before we get an incredibly encouraging word. Everything pointing to Christ. And then we hear this word of encouragement. He says, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. In other words, when you were awakened to your sin. When you came to understand the gospel, you endured, at that time, you endured, notice, a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes you were partners with those who were treated this way. But you had compassion on them in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Notice, this is where they had been, and the heat was being heightened under them now to return to that. And he was encouraging them to stay the course. That's why this morning... We began singing the way that we did and looking at the psalm the way we did and recognizing where the psalmist was and yet his claim and his hold and his steadfast grip was on the reality of these things. That, notice, the author of Hebrews says, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, they were willing to relinquish their lives, their property and all that they had I wonder today, I really do, I wonder today if there would be a willingness, an absolute willingness for us to do this today. If it meant giving up everything that we own and laying our lives down even for the cause of Christ. I I really do believe that we have been hindered because we have not been persecuted. Because we don't know yet. That is even more the reason why we are here today pleading to walk alongside of each other. To help us persevere and endure to the end. Because should that become a reality here today, we will need each other to visit one another in prison. To come alongside of and share food when the other's goods have been plundered. To provide a safe haven when the home has been taken. To walk alongside of, the, of the, the, the lady and the child who's left but the husband is in prison. Those are the realities of the way these people were having to live and had lived, And that's what they're being called to do. So when Adam dealt with us this morning in our confession, I hope you didn't get a warm, fuzzy feeling about who we are as we are connected in Christ, but that you sensed a strong bond and need that God has established that in Christ as our friend, He carries us and leads us through by using each other, enabling us to persevere to the end, and when we fail, He will not. I hope you sense that. This is the reality of where we live. It's the reality of what it means to be Christian. I want us to close. We need to close. I want us to close here. Close with what? I've been intrigued by this statement. The better possession and an abiding one. What does that mean? Well, if Scripture interprets Scripture, and I believe that it does, and if this letter interprets itself, and for the most part I believe it does, I just want to take a run through some of the things that we have already heard. I'm not even going beyond what we have heard. Of that which is better, I'd say best, but I'm going to use His word, better. Better and abiding. You know what the word abiding means? It means it doesn't go away. It's there. When my home goes away, this is there. When my health goes away, this is there. When my friends go away, this is there. When my family's gone, this is there. When everything else is gone, this is there abiding. Well, first, Jesus triumphed over death. 2.15 we read he meaning Christ himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is best. That is abiding. There's the final rest that we have been promised that we looked at In chapter 4 and verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That abides, that is best, that is what awaits us when we are talking about the promises of God, that is what we are looking for. All of our enemies are subdued, why? Because all of Christ's enemies are subdued. In chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. How do I know that those are my enemies too? Because I have already heard that he did what he did for his brothers and sisters. There is the perfect purification of our conscience, which enables us, if we have trusted in Christ, not to walk in condemnation and feel the heaviness of that guilt any longer. In chapter 9 and verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That is best, that is abiding. Hear this, He has forgotten and removed our sin. In chapter 8 and verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That is abiding. That is forever. That is best. Being brought to and being made near and remaining near to God. That's a pretty big one, isn't it? For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. You know why we can sing what a friend we have in Jesus? And that that is who I should pray to and the reason that I can go there and bear my troubles. You know why? Because he is sitting at the right hand of God in his role of eternal high priest interceding for us. That's what we read and looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 7. And then, this, this will end it here for us. This just kind of seals it. We are God's own. O-W-N. We are His and we will know Him. Chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. I want you to turn there. Here's what this covenant that we have been talking about. Here's this this word where we hear, therefore do not throw away your confidence, your confidence in Christ and this new covenant. He said, don't throw it away. In verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised, what is promised in the covenant. Hear this. Here it is. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I, listen, see that? What does it say? I will be their God. Which means what? I am His because He is my God. I'm owned by Him. I'm kept in him and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord. Why? (laughs) They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Take any one of those stack it up against A family member's members relationship as great as they are. A friendship as great as they are. A vocation as great as it is. An education as great as they are. A bank account as great as it may be. Financial security, as great as that may be in this world. Our health, as great as that may be. Whatever it is that we have. Any one of those things. Any one of those things that we just mentioned. And those seven things. Far outweighs any of the other. And you know why? Because the other will never save you, and the other will not may. Listen, the other will not abide. It won't. I've stood over the grave of too many people. Their degrees didn't mean anything. Their bank accounts meant absolutely nothing. Their farms and their properties meant absolutely nothing. Their accomplishments in life meant absolutely nothing. They weren't best and they weren't abiding. So what do we do? We encourage each other than an it end. And I want to close with this word. Verse 39. This is us. Okay? We're not just believing it. If we're in Christ, this is us. We are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who shrink back. And are destroyed. But of those who have faith and Preserve their souls. And our word would be, as Mooney comes to lead us to the table, God grant that to be so in each one of us.